Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would hear with great clarity the good news that is in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul planted the church in Galatia. He ministered in this area of modern-day central Turkey. Uh, He visited it on all three of his missionary journeys. He mentions individual members of the Galatian church by name elsewhere in the New Testament. He has deep relationships with these folks, maybe deeper than any other church that he planted. This is where his protege, Timothy, is from. Paul loves this place, but for a place that he loves, his opening remarks are different than his other letters. He starts off kind of in the normal fashion, grace and peace to you from God our Father, Uh, and normally he exchanges niceties and says, here are things you're doing really well, but here are also things that you need to work on. Uh, But he only gets uh, five verses deep before he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He launches right into it. And Paul is not only astonished, he's angry. Why is he angry? Because after he had preached the gospel there in Galatia, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, Judaizing preachers had come in from Jerusalem and sought to undermine Paul and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They try to undermine Paul's credentials, thereby trying to nullify his ministry. They would say things like, well, you know, Paul, he was the guy killing Christians. He was a persecutor of the church. And who does Paul think he is? We have sat at the feet of those who have walked and talked with Jesus himself. All he has is this Damascus Road experience. But Paul responds to that with, I am an apostle. Apostle simply means messenger, conveying a message. Uh, But the apostle that Paul is talking about is Apostle capital A. He encountered the risen Lord Jesus on that road to Damascus. He heard directly from him. He continues to hear from the Lord Jesus himself through dreams. We see that in the book of Acts. And he is used by the Holy Spirit of God to write down what we are reading today. These Judaizers were distorting the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? This is a question that I ask every clergy person or anybody who's going to be hired for a ministry staff position here at the Advent, right out of the gate. It determines whether it's going to be a long weekend of interviews or a very short weekend and getting back on the plane. And you would be amazed by the things that I hear when I ask, what is the gospel? The most common answer I receive Uh, apart from the right one, is that, well, you know, the gospel is to love God with all that you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. Is that the gospel? Is that good news? Why is it that in our liturgy, when we do the summary of the law and say, you should love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself, what is our response? Lord, have mercy. 
We don't all gather around and say, one, two, three, go team, and then go out and do it. Uh, but we, we ask God for mercy. Why? Because we know if we're self-aware enough and the Holy Spirit has convicted us that we don't love God with everything that we have. We don't love our neighbor as we love ourselves, And so we cry out for God's mercy. But who will rescue us from this predicament? Now, I'm not looking with these candidate interviews for any sort of deep insight. Uh, I would be perfectly content and overjoyed to hear, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or even in our passage this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Full stop. Those who preach a false gospel have added something to it. So they have indeed come into Galatia and said, well, yes, you need uh, Jesus uh, for your salvation, but you need to do a couple things in addition to that. You need to be circumcised, follow the Jewish dietary laws and customs. If you do this, then you can call yourself a Christian. Now, this adding to the gospel, which is actually subtracting, uh, by adding to it, as Paul said, is nullifying it, is not just a problem from almost 2,000 years ago in the Galatian church, but we encounter it in the church here today as well. Uh, you may have heard people say, well, absolutely, God's grace is free and unmerited, and you need to surrender to Christ. But, if you ever hear but, you know you're in for trouble. But... You also have to live right, and you have to trust and love for God along with a life committed to Him. And so, we're taught that if we can just manage a high degree of spiritual sorrow, hunger, and love, we can get into Christ's presence. That we have to maintain this level of spirituality if we're to remain saved and in fellowship with Christ. This is a teaching that tells people that we're saved because of the level of our faith. But the gospel says that we are saved through our faith. The first makes our performance the Savior. The second makes Christ's performance the Savior. It's, if it's, it is not the level, but the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, that saves us. Still others, we hear, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe so long as you are a loving and good person. Well, this false gospel is the opposite side of the same coin. It assumes that only good people will find God. This sounds really open-minded on the surface, but it's actually intolerant of grace. It teaches that good works are enough to get to God. If all good people can know God, then Jesus' death upon the cross was not necessary. The trouble is, this means bad people, like me, have no hope, contradicting the gospel, which invites both the good and the bad into the kingdom of God. We often see it, too, manifested in churches that are extremely intolerant of small differences or of dress 
or custom. The false teachers in Galatia wanted to impose many of the old rules and regulations having to do with dress, diet, and ritual observances. And today we can see this in highly regulated churches and religious communities, which control their members tightly and direct them into the right way to eat, dress, date, whatever it is. Or the church might insist on detailed observance of rituals. When I was first ordained, Fitzsimmons Allison was the preacher for the service, and I asked Bishop Allison, what advice would you give me as somebody starting out in ordained ministry? And I was ready for 50 years of wisdom to come channeling through him, and I was ready for him to lay it on me. And he was very quiet and very thoughtful, and then he looked up at me and he said, Andrew, you can preach heresy from the pulpit in the Episcopal Church, and they won't say a thing. But if you start moving the furniture around, they will tear your rear end up. <laughs> well, his, his advice proved to be very true uh, and very good. Uh, but, you know, there's nothing wrong with ritual. But if your emphasis is with those secondary and tertiary things, rather than what or rather who it is pointing to, that is Jesus Christ, then the gospel has been lost. Because Paul understands that a right understanding of the gospel is a matter of life and death. He understands that the way of the self is destruction and condemnation and death. The way of Jesus Christ is salvation. The way of ourselves is condemnation. It's no wonder that Paul is upset because he understands what's on the line. William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, ministered in the slums of East London, and he would often take afternoon and evening walks through where he ministered. And it was on these walks that God would often give him a vision, and he would go home and write what it was that God revealed to him in, this, in that vision. And it was on one such occasion at the end of the day when people were closing up their shops and scurrying home and going about their business with great intention that God gave him a vision and he wrote it down. And he said this, It was a dark and I saw a dark and stormy ocean. Over it the black clouds hung heavily. Through them every now and then vivid lightning flashed and loud thunder rolled. While the winds moaned and the waves rose and foamed, towered and broke, only to rise and foam and tower and break again. In that ocean, I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings, plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again. And then some sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock, that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this great rock, I saw a vast platform. Onto this platform I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. On looking more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued, industriously working and scheming by ladders, ropes, boats, and other means more effective 
to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there were some who actually jumped into the water, regardless of the consequences in their passion to rescue the perishing. And I hardly know which gladdened me the most, the sight of the poor drowning people climbing onto the rocks and reaching a place of safety, or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those whose whole being was wrapped up in the effort for their deliverance. As I looked on, I saw that the occupants of that platform were quite a mixed company. That is, they were divided into different sets or classes, and they occupied themselves with different pleasures and employments. But only a very few of them seemed to take, make it their business to get the people out of the sea. But what puzzled me most was the fact that though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not even seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care, about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes, many of whom were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and even their own children. Do we understand what is at stake when we talk about the gospel? You may wonder why the Advent is so passionate, why we pray that you would share the urgency, because the lives of our loved ones and even the lives of those that we do not love are on the line. Without the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of him, without the gospel, there is no rescue. There is no ark of refuge. There is no rock of ages for ourselves to hide in, to find safety, to find salvation. We are simply left to ourselves in the storm and amongst the rising waves. The gospel is something we need to be uncompromising about. Because a different gospel means that we are deserting the one who called us. To abandon the gospel message is to abandon Christ personally. To change even slightly means the gospel is completely lost. To alter the gospel is to play with eternal life and death. The stakes are high. Our knowledge of Christ, the truth of the gospel, and the eternal destiny of people's souls. These things are worth fighting for, worth speaking out over, worth reminding ourselves of over and over again. Around here at the Advent, we actually gauge our sermons and we ask, was what you heard today, and take this on vacation with you, was what you heard today good advice or good news? Was what you heard today, was it merely touching or was it healing? Did Jesus have to die in order for me to preach this sermon? Or is it a matter of indifference? Paul tells us that if anyone, even an angel preaches to you a different gospel, they are to be accursed eternally damned. C.H. Spurgeon tells the story of an image he was given once of 
of an angel? What if an angel were to approach you, as this one did theoretically with Spurgeon, and said, Mr. Spurgeon, I have something to tell you. Spurgeon said, I do not want to hear it. The angel looked at him with some disbelief and said, but, but what I have to tell you is of utmost importance. Do you not want to hear it? And Spurgeon said, I do not want to hear it. The angel said, but Mr. Spurgeon, you need to understand that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And Spurgeon looked at the angel and said, be gone from me, devil, from the pit of hell from whence you came. For before I heard your voice, I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his word, and now you have me trusting an angel. This was the genius of Thomas Cranmer when he put together our liturgy. In the communion service, after we have confessed our sins, the minister stands to pronounce the absolution, not because they themselves can forgive you, but to proclaim to you that your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. And just in case you don't believe it, the minister then reads scripture verses, and what Cramer does is he actually walks you through the gospel. That's why he really wants us to read all of them, but for time's sake, we cut some out. Uh, but that's why he does this. Hear the word of God to all who truly turn to him. Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Are you weighed down? Are you burdened by your sin? Are the waves overwhelming you? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's now a way to be rescued through Jesus Christ. God has sent his only begotten son on a rescue mission to save you, to reach down and to throw himself into the waves of life in order to lift you up. This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But sometimes I feel unworthy of his grace. I feel unworthy of his love. Well, if you feel yourself the vilest sinner, that's exactly who Jesus Christ came to save. He's looking especially at you. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. His death on the cross was once and for all final done. It is finished. And he now sits at the right hand of God the Father and advocates on our behalf. And he still bears those scars. And God the Father now sees us as his children. Friends, believe on the good news of Jesus Christ this morning. For I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that we preach is not man's gospel, but is from Jesus Christ himself. Amen. Amen.